When I was much younger, I used to love to stay up and ring in the new year on New Year's Eve. My family and I did a number of things to celebrate over the years, all leading up to watching the ball drop in Times Square at the stroke of midnight. Most of us would stay up and watch the ball drop in Times Square at the stroke of midnight, that is. My dad, not so much. Come 9.30 or so on New Year's Eve, the news anchors stationed in Times Square would begin their coverage, interspersed with various musical acts. My mom and my brother and sister and I would be camped out in our pajamas eating tasty snacks and toggling between New Year's Eve broadcast and some movie or other. We were partying already, and let me tell you, as our young people say these days, it was lit. <laughs> and so right around then, my dad would rise theatrically from his chair. He would stretch and yawn and then enact a dramatic monologue that seemed to play out almost the exact same way every year. Dad would pose the question to himself, gesturing at the TV set, do I need to be awake for this? No, his answer came, swift and straightforward. No, I do not. Dad would then proceed to make some crack about how we should wake him up only on the off chance that the ball failed to drop and time froze and we got stuck in 19-whatever. Oh, come on, Dad, we protested, acting out our lines. Stay up for this one. You'll miss out on the party. Dad would just smile and bid us good night, leaving the room with the entirely predictable quip, again, every year, without fail, that TV host Dick Clark never seemed to get any older. <laughs> Such a starry-eyed romantic, my father. He had not a drop of sentimentality to spare for something he saw as 100% guaranteed. The earth would surely keep on turning, the clock would surely strike midnight, and January 1st surely would come. <coughs> Why celebrate something that's bound to happen? Never mind, watch for it, and wait for it, and lose sleep over it. In today's Gospel passage, Jesus predicts his second coming in the form of the so-called Son of Man, who will descend from the clouds in glory on the last day. Christ, the human one anointed, chosen by God, will reconcile the world to God once and for all at the very end of human history. The writers of Matthew make this triumphant event sound like a sure thing. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus says, but my words will not pass away. The second coming of Christ sounds about as inevitable as the dropping of a glitzy ball on New Year's Eve would become nearly 2,000 years later. Though arguably the Second Coming will have better special effects. It's likely that the end time predictions in Matthew come across as so certain of themselves because this Gospel was written 50 years after Jesus had died and Jesus hadn't come back yet. So much for Jesus' claim that this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. 
Few people who knew Jesus personally were still alive in the year 80 of the Common Era, which is when Matthew's Gospel was likely written. Yet still, no Christ on a cloud to be seen. Matthew was probably trying to bolster his community's expectation that Jesus was really coming, for real this time, and soon. That was 1,939 years ago. And despite many similar predictions since, the Son of Man has yet to return. But honestly, would we really want him to? Some of the imagery in this gospel passage is rough. The coming, we are told, will be like a sudden flood. It will snatch away one worker in the field and leave the other. It will come as unexpectedly as a thief in the night. Thieves, floods, people gone missing. This doesn't sound like a very happy ending to me. But suppose we take Jesus seriously, but not literally. What if the second coming won't actually be like the rapture in popular imagination, where people who are saved are airlifted to heaven and the rest will be left behind to fend for themselves? What if, instead, Jesus is simply stressing that we can't know for sure when this faithful day will happen? Like a flash flood or someone gone missing or a thief who breaks in and steals, these are things, by definition, we can't predict. If we could predict them, they wouldn't happen. And so we're left knowing neither the day nor the hour. Maybe Jesus' return is not so much like the Times Square ball beginning to descend without fail at 11.59 and 30 seconds p.m. Maybe the coming of the realm of God is not such a sure thing, after all. Today marks the first Sunday of a new liturgical year, the first Sunday in the season of Advent. This is a time of precious and fragile beginnings, a time when we watch and wait for the light that has been foretold to come into the world. This is a time when we watch and wait for God to come into human flesh once more. This is also a time of already but not yet. Jesus has come already, yes, and he hasn't yet come fully. We know that the world is not as it should be. We know that the world is a far cry from the realm of God that Isaiah dreams of in the reading that Marianne shared with us. A realm where people turn their weapons into tools for feeding each other. We don't need to look far to see just the opposite in our world. Nations taking up arms against nations, people pitted against each other, more and more people sinking into debt and poverty, when the richest among us make more money in a minute than most of us do in a year. I don't need to tell you that we are far from walking in the light of the Lord. Do I need to be awake for this? Do we need to be awake for this? Wouldn't it be better just to go to sleep so we can shut out this living nightmare and dream sweet dreams, 
blissful visions of heaven. When it comes to healing the world, wouldn't it just be best to leave that up to God? It all seems a little overwhelming, doesn't it? This work of waging peace in a world hell-bent on violence. Wouldn't it be better just to be optimistic, to eat, drink, and be merry? Wouldn't it be better just to hit the snooze button on life? Sometimes I ask myself these very same questions. But then I remember my dad. When it came to New Year's Eve, it's true, my dad just couldn't even. But dad also taught me the value of hard work. He took little for granted, and he kept showing up because he knew that when it came to our family's security and well-being, there were no guarantees. My dad's favorite Bible verse, Luke 12:48. From those who have been given much, much is expected. My dad stayed awake. Long hours, in fact, from early in the morning when he went to his first job teaching high school to late at night when he took up his second job refinishing antique furniture in our basement. He stayed awake. Coffee helped. A lot of coffee helped. But what really kept him going, I believe, was the hope deep in his bones that his work made the world around him a little better. That's what empowered him to persevere. My dad's insistence on staying awake 364 days a year, at least, is what helps me to make sense of this passage. Because if we were 100% sure that in the future Christ will come on a cloud and instantly transform us and our world, if we were absolutely certain that Jesus will come and set everything right for us, then nothing we did would really matter. If it's all going to be okay, whatever we do, then who cares? Might as well yawn and stretch and settle in for a long winter's nap. But 1,939 years on, the world is still sick and in need of healing. We know the truth of suffering all too well. And yet there is another truth. 1,939 years on, we continue to receive the riches of the way of Jesus. We continue to receive Jesus' instruction in how to break the cycle of violence, how to wage peace, how to be in solidarity with the people the world throws away, how to counter fear with love. When we worship, when we pray, when we show up with turkey and all the fixings for folks who long for full bellies and warm hearts, when we do these things, we continue to be reminded and to remind each other that God's steadfast love really does endure forever. We have been given much, friends, not least the riches of our tradition. What then is expected of us? For one thing, hope. And hope is born from the conviction that death and suffering will not have the last word. Hope is not a passive feeling, like it might seem when we say, well, I'll hope for the best and see what happens. 
Christian hope, hope in Christ, is an active undertaking. It begins when we commit to staying awake, when we hold out that cup of spiritual joe to another person and nudge each other, when we are honest enough to say to our trusted ones, stay with me. I need you. I need you. And I believe that you need me too. Hope begins with such disciplined love. Love that watches and waits for new life to emerge and delights when it does. This kind of hope is not a passive feeling and it isn't mere optimism either. It's not some vague sense that everything's going to be alright. Hope is instead a conviction that what we do every day matters regardless of how it all turns out. It matters that we gather to worship and to connect. It matters that we grow in trust and understanding. It matters that we reach out to love our neighbors and serve our communities. In these ways, hope opens us to healing and resurrection. We don't even need to know what that looks like yet. Healing and resurrection. That part is God's job. We just need to trust that, as Jesus says to his, to his disciples in the last moment of their time on earth, I am with you always, to the end, whenever and however that end may come. Do we need to be awake for this? Yes. Because God is coming yet again this Advent. God is coming yet again into our vulnerable and sleepy yet persevering bodies. God is coming yet again to reveal a way forward that is more beautiful and right and energizing and life-giving than we could have imagined. It's the stuff of hope. So come on. Stay up for this one. Watch and pray. It's a party you're not going to want to miss. Amen.